to the Four Idle Hands podcast and a very uh, happy St. Patrick's Day, Terry, and to all our listeners. Happy St. Patrick's Day to you, Michael. I was watching the uh, parade from Dublin this morning, which, I mean, it, it, the crowds were incredible in Dublin. I mean, it looked you know, nice to see all the crowds back. I don't say the parade looked that exciting, though. It never is. <laughs> I mean, I think the guest of honour was the guy, is it John C. Riley, the actor? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, he, he was in the kind of box looking a bit bemused this morning as he kind of walked past the stuff and had all the Garda and the Garda with dogs, mounted police, all this kind of stuff. So it's obviously very good to see them all back together and back massive crowds in Dublin. Plus it's a holiday again. It's an even bigger holiday because they've got a holiday tomorrow. Yeah, and see, as a neutral country, we don't have much of an army, Terry, so uh, uh, there's none of them out marching about the place. So cops and dogs is about as, about as good as it gets. But they, they usually have, um, I know we're digressing, but they usually have American colleges with their bands and stuff. And there was some, looked like some, I had the sign down, unfortunately. But I mean, out of the travel thing, it'd be quite difficult, I guess. But uh, still. Yeah, I, I can assume that uh, that, that is the, the case right enough. Um, so this week, uh, we've got um, uh, our usual run through the, the news. We'll talk a bit about sport with the demise of Chelsea. And uh, the final weekend of the Six Nations coming up, we, we'll be talking about that. Uh, we're also going to be talking a little bit about um, uh, working the roads, Terry. Uh, Ross Stewart's been out with his uh, pickaxe and shovel. He was very fetching in his high-vis vest. He was. Uh, and uh, we've got reviews. Um, you've been off to Comic-Con in Aberdeen and Batman. And uh, we've got a couple of album reviews of Rex Orange County and Lilifer Yanya's latest releases. And our set piece this week is a great interview with um, Graham Thompson, who has recently uh, released his um, biography of Simple Minds themes for great cities. We have a, a great chat with him. Yeah. So um, lots to get through, Terry. Uh, let's start off with Chelsea. Now, do you have any sympathy for Chelsea at all? Uh, none whatsoever. Right. Because, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do feel, I mean, I, you know, the fa- fans are kind of blind to this sort of stuff. I mean, they, you know, Abramovich came in, had all of the success of Chelsea and, you know, all the stuff they've done over the years and Champions League and the league and so on and Mourinho, etc. And I guess, I guess, like most things in life, if you don't pay attention to what's happening, it will come back and bite you eventually. But they were just happy to get the good old, the good times roll sort of thing. And now it's, now it's terrible, I say so. Yeah, I mean, um, most Premier League clubs are uh, either, you, you know, now controlled by um, uh, non-democratic um, uh, countries in one way or another, or by um, greedy bastards. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> exactly. take your pick. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, we're going to get off the topic, but I mean, you saw Boris Johnson with uh, the Saudi Arabian leader this week, who was the guy implicated in the Khashoggi murder. Um, you know, so they're obviously buying or they own uh, Newcastle. So, you know, you wonder if you look under the skirt of that organisation, how that works. But, you know, the, the Chelsea thing, the more you look into it, I mean, the worse it gets. Because once they pay their salaries, they have no cash left. I mean, I don't know who they're going to draw in the Champions League next, but, but somewhere further than France, they're screwed, really. So Yeah, uh, and uh, not only that, I mean, they're... Um... Uh, Stamford Bridge Stadium is a bit tired looking at this stage and I think that they had planned to uh, demolish and rebuild on that site and that, that's not now going to happen and I suppose any potential buyer might be faced with that cost as well as uh, having yeah. to re- recruit really at the top end of the market again because all these players will be out of contract I'm sure the contracts will be 
avoided because of the situation. Because even if they set, I mean, apparently there's loads of people want to buy it. I mean, there's no no difficulty there to sell the club. But the problem is, where does the money go? So and the money can't go to Abramovich because he's obviously sanctioned, etc. I mean, although it may, that may change, I guess it may seem to be in, moving towards a very slow ceasefire at some point, hopefully in Ukraine. But but I can't see that happening. I don't But you know. What do they do with the money? How do they, you know, how do they, you know, they're going to have to, you know, their sponsors have kicked out already. They've got it gone. And, you know, if they get kicked out, if they lose some points, which would be great because that might, might get in the Champions League next year. <laughs> <laughs> Every cloud. Um, but uh, yeah, just, I mean, the worst case scenario is, I guess, that they could, I mean, bankruptcy, relegation. I mean, like, that could all feasibly happen. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And um, really, I'd be indifferent to that end of it. I'm not a particular fan of them. Um, I don't like Abramovich. Uh, I think uh, a lot of these uh, owners are up to absolutely no good. And uh, chickens are now coming home to roost for, um, you know, Chelsea fans and uh, lots of people who accommodated Russians in London over the years, including former mayor Boris Johnson. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, so moving on from that, uh, that that's kind of like a big change this week. But uh, there's no change on COVID mask wearing indoors, Terry, in Scotland. No, uh, it's like, I don't, I don't want to jump forward too much, but it's interesting. On last weekend, past I went to the Comic Con at uh, the Tekka, first time being back in the Tekka, and we went in, and I would say about it was indoors. I would say about five percent people indoors were wearing masks. Great. Um, so I, I didn't, I have to be honest, I didn't wear one. I took, took it off. I thought, well, you know, we're here. We're going to probably get it anyway. So, yeah, Nicholas Sturgeon has kept it for another two weeks. I'm not quite sure the, relega- the regulations in Wales and Northern Ireland. England, certainly no mask. But, I mean, apparently in your workplace from next week, it's guidelines. So it seems like it's mixed messages, I think. Yeah. Well, I know uh, quite a few people who've got it at work in the last couple of weeks. Mm. And um, uh, this is a problem for employers is, um, you know, with it being particularly virulent at the moment uh, and, um, you know, no mask wearing indoors, it's potentially a bit of a lethal cocktail in terms of uh, uh, making sure the businesses have some continuity um, on, on their premises, you know. But I don't think it makes any difference. I mean, I'm just you know, looking around my work over the last couple of weeks is quite a few people have had it. They've been at home. The business has continued. You know, the people who are working from home. It's been one or two. Maybe you've had to take some time. You know, literally can't work for whatever reason. There's a couple of folk, a couple of anti-vaxxers who've have been hit badly. But I mean, I'm not 100% sure the masks are more than a comfort, really. You know, for people, perhaps. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Speaking of people who've been hit badly, um, the Six Nations matches of the weekend and uh, the Ireland England game was kind of. Uh, uh, a bit overshadowed by a, a high tackle in the second minute, uh, a late hit as well, a wee bit on James Ryan. Yeah, I mean that was uh, unfortunate. I mean, it was terrible. I don't think I don't think the guy really meant to tackle. I don't think it. And I've seen worse, you know, shoulder to head contact before, um, but that's the rules, I guess. And James Ryan was clearly um, in a worse for wear. I think he's out, out this weekend coming up as well. So. Um, that's what the rules is, but it seemed to affect Ireland more than it affected England. England seemed to galvanise them actually, um, and you know Ireland seemed to be a bit shell shocked and have to make. And, and Henderson came on and didn't play particularly well for quite a while to come up to get in the game. But yeah, a bit of a strange game that one actually. I mean, it ended up fine for me, aren't you? But uh, um, 
Yeah, yeah they were, they, uh, England basically just ran out of puff after um, pr- putting in a pretty uh, solid back foot performance, I would say. Uh, but they offered nothing going forward. The, the, the result was never really in doubt, was it, in terms of Ireland winning the game? No, and I think I'm still bemused by the scrums at that game, how you know Ireland have got a pretty decent scrummage and how they got penalised so much and how, it, to me, it didn't really look like they were doing much wrong. But every time they spun round, they put an England penalty. And I thought that seemed... Maybe a very quite a niche rule they were in booking there, but I think a lot of people were confused by that and I couldn't really see what the problem was. But yeah, yeah, referees in some cases overcompensate a wee bit for a big decision like a sending off, you know, and uh, that that may well have been uh, what, what's happened there. Um, somebody who's taken um, matters into their own hands this week, Terry, is Rod Stewart. Uh, Rod has been out and about, busy in his domain. Well, I mean, he's got a bit of. So the story was that he he bumped his Ferrari, damaged the frame of his Ferrari, hadn't I think, down the pothole. So he decided to take matters into his own hand and uh, get his high-vis vest. I can't imagine Rod Stewart would have a high-vis vest on anywhere in this house, for example, and fill it in himself. But I didn't see, did he engage in a contractor or he just was it just himself? I think it was uh, Rod and a couple of his mates. You know, he's got mates everywhere, Terry. So uh, um, he, he uh, I'm sure, would have got a few guys to... Um, uh, chuck in the hardcore and then he could just pose for a couple of snaps apparently he got uh, slagged off um, for posting on Instagram some time ago that he was uh, cleaning up his garage doing a big tidy up in his garage and uh, he posted the photograph in an absolutely pristine white suit yes I did say that <laughs> that was good but oh, I mean fair play to him I guess he's took it into his own I mean it's not going to cost him very much to do his road I, know was, I assume it wasn't a private road it was a council one but I know it was private but um, no I mean obviously you know damage the Ferrari that will do that to you but um, I wonder actually you know if Aberdeen Council will be interested in coming up here because state the roads around this part of the world are absolutely horrendous at the minute so yeah yeah he could find himself just as popular as he is on stage well the last time I saw him on stage I think it was the Graham Norton show he was absolutely horrendous so, <laughs> So, and I notice he's not doing too many gigs coming up. So maybe, I don't know, maybe that's a sideline for him. Like, so yeah, just, maybe, maybe the gigs are interfering with his, uh, <laughs> you, you know, uh, road crew gear, you know. <laughs> I was trying to think of a pun for a Rod Stewart song, but I can't really think of one there. Sure, link to that. But, yeah. um, <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's probably it, actually. So, but I mean, fair play to him, actually. I guess he's done it. It's <laughs> PR for it, sort of thing. So, maybe. Indeed. So, good, uh, good on Rod for doing that. Um, we, uh, we, we've had uh, uh, great fun this week uh, speaking to um, our uh, guest for our interview, uh, Graham Thompson. Graham's a um, uh, well-respected journalist and uh, writer on all things music. And uh, he has recently uh, published um, a biography on, on um, Simple Minds, Themes for Great Cities. And um, myself and Terry mm-hmm. sat down and talked to him about that and some of his other work. Here it is. Right, a very big four idle hands. Uh, welcome to Graham Thompson. Graham, um, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, your new book, uh, Themes for Great Cities, is a biography of Simple Minds, and it's really a terrific read. Uh, looks like you've had a great reaction to the book. Thank you. Well, firstly, it's, it's, it's very nice to be here. Thanks for asking me. Um, yeah, I think so. The, the, the feedback's been incredibly positive, very, uh, very encouraging, very... Um, very warm you know i think there's a lot of actually a lot of affection out there for the, for the records that i'm writing about um and that period of simple minds uh, the early days and uh, that was my hunch 
kind of when I when I wanted to write the book, and that seems to have been proven right so far. Um, so it's been really encouraging, yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, it seems like the obvious thing to do, but uh, I, I had to listen back to the early studio albums while, while I was reading the book. And, you know, somebody who's familiar with the early, you know, singles and, you know, Love Song and I Travel and uh, stuff like that, rather than probably the albums, it, it kind of opened my eyes to just how experimental the band were back then. You know, there's hints of early Roxy Music uh, magazine, uh, for example, but it's still most definitely them, isn't it? Good. Yeah, I know. I'm really pleased it kind of compelled you to go back to those records because that was a big part of the intention of the book was just to kind of make you want to listen to those albums. Yeah, I mean, it, they were moving so quickly, I think. And, you know, the first record, Life in a Day, I think you can really hear those influences right at the surface of the music. You know, certainly magazine, Roxy Music, uh, The Velvet Underground. But, you know, within six months, they'd released another record and, and they started writing as a collective. And, and, and what's interesting to me is that dynamic when you've just got five guys chucking everything into the pot. And, um, you know, I know Jim, to a certain extent, thinks that you can really kind of hear what they're listening to on those records. But actually, I think because there's so much going on there and because it's so diverse, actually, it sounds completely like them and nothing else. So, um they are a really interesting band at that point, you know, and I, I want to write about that point where they were a genuine band, you know, there was five of them really kind of throwing ideas into the music. But the, yeah. I, I was amazed, I mean, when you think back at it, Life in a Day was 1979, yeah. which was so, I mean, that's, I, was, I saw that, I thought that's a long, earlier than I thought, and then they released so many albums so quickly, and I think, for me, Slip of Minds didn't really kind of come on the radar, possibly, because I was living in Northern Ireland, I mean, that's what it was, but Waterfront was probably the first, you know, sort of hit single, and, and possibly other Breakfast Club, I guess, as well. But I mean, it was just so, so many, so quick to get stuff out the door. Like, so. Yeah, and I'll, I mean, you think nowadays they, they probably wouldn't be allowed to do that, you know, six, <laughs> six or seven records in before you have, you know, a proper hit. Bands aren't really, don't really get that time anymore, that time and space to, to just kind of find themselves in, in many ways. So, um, yeah, it's probably a story that couldn't be repeated in, in the 2020s. No, I mean, obviously, you, you seem to really, you know, have a real affinity to, to the band. I mean, were, were you a fan in the early days or was this something you kind of, kind of came to them later? Or Well, I was a fan as early as I could be because, I mean, I was, you know, I was born in 1973. So it, it was like you. I mean, at Waterfront, don't you forget about me, that Sparkle in the Rain record, 1984, was when I first kind of got into Simple Minds, you know, as a listener. Um and then I just went back, you know, you, you go back and you and you kind of find out more about them. And, and as you say, there was another seven, six or seven records already made yeah. um, that I could explore. And I was and I loved those records very early on. Yeah. Empires and Dance, New Go Dream, Sons and Fascination. Um, you know, they made six albums worth of material in about three and a half years uh, yeah. in those first days. So incredibly kind of, um, you know, a, a, a lot to explore for a young a music listener who's just going to kind of get his eyes open. So, yeah. so yeah, I got into them when when they were just starting to become a very big band, and then sort of scrolled back and and uh, rediscovered all that other stuff. Yeah. But I mean, any of those albums in particular resonate with you, or are you a favourite of those sort of early days? Or yeah, I think Empires and Dance is is, is probably the one that really resonates with me because it's so, in a weird way, it's so contemporary now. I mean, God, we look at what's happening in the world now, and there's something about that that uh, depiction of a kind of very fragmented and alienated Europe that's on that record that still feels very contemporary um, and uh, and the music is just incredibly kind of taut and relentless and and yeah. um, but yet also 
quite accessible and, and dance friendly and disco friendly. Mm -hmm. But but um, there's a huge amount of atmosphere on that record that I really. Okay. Why did you, why did you choose the title for from themes from great cities? Because obviously, my impression of Glasgow, you know, was kind of the second city of the empire. It was always a a very my impression of Glasgow, you know, from where I was born, was it was a very outgoing city, and you know, had visions beyond itself. And but did that song just fit the book perfectly? You think, or was it? I think so. And I mean, I, lo I love it. It's an instrumental track mm. as well. It's just an amazingly kind of evocative thing. And I think Simple Minds did that, even with some of the songs where there are lyrics. Um, there is a kind of movie playing in your head. I think as you're as you're listening to it, and yeah, it evokes absolutely. a huge amount of atmosphere. And I think. So, so something about that phrase kind of captured a lot of what was going on in that in the music. But also, like you say about Glasgow, I think there was a an attempt to kind of try and depict, um, you know, Glasgow as a more modern city and, and a kind of post-empire city, and 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 making connections with Europe and Berlin and the, the great cities of, uh, you know, European uh, culture, and uh, which maybe hadn't been done before. And I think it's quite interesting. I try and kind of make a few threads in the book about that, about how these guys coming out of, uh, you know, working class, high rise Glasgow are looking to a different place to try and kind of explain their own city to themselves. And yeah. I think there's something quite interesting. In that, so. okay. One little sideline to the, to the book, actually, because I got my, my wife's from Glasgow. So, um, you know, Mine too. I know the city pretty well over the years and stuff. And my daughter lives there. She lives in Shawlands. And, um, so the, the, the book set me off spinning, looking at the kind of rock and roll history of Glasgow a little bit. So, you know, mm -hmm. I was looking at Mars Bar, is that still there? The, the Dune Castle, which I think is another bar in Shawlands now. So, um, and I was trying to find a, a book that maybe details the history of Glasgow's early days of that kind of music scene, and I haven't found one yet, actually. So I need to look. But um, it's kind I of there's a gap. I've always been I've always been trying to write a kind of a, a, not just Glasgow, but a kind of history of Scottish music in a way, Scottish popular music. I think there's a gap in the market for something yeah. that. And that kind of pins it down to places and cities and, and venues and stuff. So well, well, lots of cities. I mean, we're I'm from from Oldman, which is a very small town. Michael's from Monterey, all time, but my music was was Belfast, and you know, Belfast was early days. It was a lot of punk. It was a Good Vibrations record label. It was the Undertones. It was, and then it became you know into that. There was a certain history there as well. So it kind of maybe yeah, I've been looking through loads of stuff for, for Glasgow, and it, it kind of really and knowing the city reasonably well. So um, you've obviously spoken to the band members and managed past and past and present. I mean. And there's loads of bands that you just don't have that detail on. I mean, and we're simple minds. And are they happy with the book, or, or were they really keen to get it out? Or were they? I don't think they had any great compulsion to get it out. I mean, it's it is my book. It's not a kind of authorized um, no. version, and it wasn't commissioned by them or anything like that. You know, I, I approached them. Um, I think Jim will at some point write his own, you know, version of his life story and within the band, and um, but. You know, so yeah, I was keen to get them on board. I probably would have written it anyway, but it, it would have been a lesser book without them. Um, I know Jim, Jim and Charlie both haven't read it. Um, I, um, I know they've, they're quite pleased with how it's been received. Um, and I've had some nice messages from, from Jim, but I think Jim, because he is going to write his own story, is kind of like, I just want to keep a bit of distance from somebody else's version of it. Um, but they were really generous. You know, we had several interviews and, and also the, you know, the other guys in the band who I wanted to, really kind of honor their contribution because it's so important that it wasn't just a one-man or a two-man show at that point it was you know Derek Forbes as everyone who listens to those records knows is a you know an immense bass player makes a huge contribution and, and Mick McNeil and Brian McGee also so I was very, very pleased that they were all kind of accessible as well. Okay. Uh, knitting those elements of the book together um, Graham it's obviously not a straightforward job I mean particularly when you've got so many 
sources for interviews. Um, how, how long did the process of writing the book take from start to finish? Um, well, I did the initial interviews were were March were about two years ago, so so March twenty twenty, just before the, the pandemic actually closed things down. Um, but I'd already started before that. Quite often, I'll do all the interviews first, and then kind of let that, in some ways, dictate the shape of the book. But this time, I wanted to sort of put the music right at the front of it, and my sort of my response to the music. So I'd written quite a lot of that part uh, prior to that, and it was finished by early twenty twenty one. So it was about a year of quite intense work, but but you know, lots of you know thirty odd years of listening probably <laughs> into it uh, prior to that, and and. Just, just jotting stuff down, noting stuff down, and trying to get. It's always about, you know, what version of the story you want to tell, because there's so many ways you can tell the story of bands and, and artists and music. So it's kind of just getting that straight in my head takes a lot of time, and uh, it was a pleasure. It was, what, it was probably the most pleasurable book I've, I've written so far. It was just, it was a joy to to, to write because it's um, also you kind of feel like you you're not going over ground that's been explored all that often before. You know, some artists have been written about a lot and. Some albums have been canonized and you feel there's not a huge amount of fresh to say about it, which I didn't feel with a lot of this music because it's, you know, it's still kind of not given the credence maybe it deserves. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the book is punctuated with, um, you know, a couple of uh, short chapters with recollections from the likes of Bobby Gillespie and James Dean Bradfield in there. Um, Bobby obviously sees them as a Glasgow band, um, but it's their kind of Europeanness that attracts James. Uh, I guess that's part of Simple uh, Simple Minds' appeal is that they mean so many different things to different people. Yeah, that's so true. I think, and and yeah, I wanted to get that idea from Bobby of of a kind of direct source of inspiration for you know someone who's maybe three or four years younger than them and sees these guys doing something quite abstract and arty and coming from the same area of Glasgow more or less um you know that's a direct connection that's a kind of look at that I can do that um and with James who's you know roughly the same age as me and sort of came into them about the same time so he again he listened to Waterfront and then worked back um yeah, it's that idea of something being completely kind of other, I think, of, of not being defined from where you come from. It's the kind of opposite of Bobby in a way. Um, and that you can be as kind of, uh, you know, he uses the word pretentious. You shouldn't be defined by your pretensions. They're limited by them. You should be kind of freed up by them and you should be allowed to explore all that stuff. And it's, I think for James, it's a class thing as well. You know, it's, it's that idea of um, the excitement of, of, of discovery that a lot of, you know, maybe people who've had a more... Um, you know, a wider upbringing, shall we say, and who were exposed to more things when they were younger, maybe wouldn't have that same excitement that, that Simple Minds had as they were discovering stuff at that age. So, yeah, two different, two very different reactions, I think, to the impact of their music. Yeah, and, um, you know, Europe was definitely a very foreign place back then. I mean, it was an expensive place to get to from, from Britain. I mean, you know, you didn't have Ryanair or EasyJet or you know, the idea you can just go to somewhere for the weekend. It was, um, you know, definitely more of an adventure going. And um, their, their music kind of conveys that uh, from that era, the, the first few albums. Absolutely. Yeah, it is a kind of a voyage into the unknown. And you don't have that kind of blizzard of um, imagery that we now have at a click of a button, of course. It, it feels <laughs> quite exotic. And yeah, they talked, Jim and Charlie both talked about this, this hitchhiking trip they took. You know, just before they formed Simple Minds, and I think it was 76. Um, 
you know, and kind of rolling into Italian cities at midnight and, and that sense of the real exoticism of Europe. And I think you definitely can hear that on, you know, real to real cacophony and on Empires and Dance. There is that sense of just a complete kind of new world opening up. It's quite exciting. I yeah. mean, Tip of Minds were almost, I mean, I was just going to go back to the early days when they were kind of outside the kind of Glasgow scene, weren't they, to a degree? They were almost above all that. They, were, they, had, a, they had a bigger vision for, for the future, for their, where they were going sort of thing, so... Definitely. And yeah, and just before kind of all the bands that, came, you know, the postcard scene and, and the stuff that came just just after them, really, they'd kind of left already by that. And I think it, it's one of the things I wanted to write about in the book. It, it puts them in a slightly interesting position because they've never really been part of any club in terms of Scottish music. They don't fit into any of the scenes or eras um, particularly easily. Um, and I went, there was a big exhibition. I don't know if you saw it, the Rip It Up exhibition yeah. a few years ago. You know, and I thought Simple Minds, I think there was a guitar and an album sleeve. It was a very kind of limited, minimalist uh, representation of Simple Minds in that exhibition. I thought they don't really know what to do with this band, you know, because there have been so many different bands and they've never fitted into one particular element of the Scottish scene. They're kind of outsiders in a funny way. Um, it was funny, speaking of Rip It Up, they, a few years ago, um, Aberdeen does this festival thing called True North. And the last night of the True North was like a musical representation of Rip, Rip It Up sort of thing. So they had people, had Stina from Honeyblood doing garbage. They had all these people that had somebody doing the proclaimers. So it was quite funny because no one knew the words of the proclaimers, but anyway. Um, <laughs> and then they did Simple Minds American. And it was inter- interesting that for me, it was probably the most different song that everybody did that night. Um, and a lot of people in the audience got up and left when it came on. People just went and got a beer, and I thought, well, that's a bit strange. Why? I mean, literally, it was going to be the time when everybody went for a beer, but it just it stood out to me that it was, it was, they had the lassie from Altered Images was doing her stuff, and it was all pure pop sort of stuff. And then the American came on, and it was like, oh, that's a different, it is a different level almost. You know, so. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting that it just doesn't, hasn't been kind of canonized or, 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 or kind of brought into the, you know the fold in some ways that music it is quite interesting and i think it might just be because they were they were slightly before everyone else and they just changed so much that it it's almost like you have to qualify you know we all say oh i love early simple minds you know early simple minds um because they changed so much after that and it's it's almost like yeah. you have to kind of put a caveat on liking yeah. them which I think I mean, yeah that, that um that, that, sorry terry uh, that you know, change and, you know, subsequent changes that they made, um, you know, partly was down to what I guess you, you, you get in a lot of successful bands where it's almost like a kind of benevolent dictatorship to to make those changes and to, um, I guess, realise when the, the band uh, is likely to be heading into a cul-de-sac. I mean, my, my favourite album of uh, Simple Minds would be New Gold Dream. But, uh, you know, artistically, it is a bit of a cul-de-sac, isn't it? Where were they going to go after that? I mean, um, Jim says in the book that they couldn't do a New Gold Dream too. So you've got to be kind of, in a way, ruthless about um, progression to to stay relevant. I think that's really true. And, and, you know, if you start, if you kept making the same record over and over again, you would get rightly vilified for it. And, you know, we know plenty of bands that, that have done that. So you're kind of in a, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of situation. And I think one thing they always did do was just keep keep moving the story forward, you know, and keep trying to change um, the dynamic. And of course, you know, I think we underestimate often when, you know, when band members leave, it's not just a kind of peripheral thing in the biography, you know, of the band. It's a, it makes a huge impact. When, when you write the way they write and there's five people um, contributing, then if you take one out of that and then two out of that, 
that is obviously going to have a huge impression. And, and you bring in a drummer like Mel Gaynor, who's this incredibly big, dynamic, uh, fantastic drummer, but, you know, huge, loud. And that's going to have a massive impact on the music. And it did. And after New Gold Dream, you know, you hear that demonstrably on the next record. I mean, it's a massive gear change. Uh, do you think, this is going to be very unfair, um, but Simple Minds, to me, at the time, they always, I was, Michael's not, but I am a big of a U2 fan. I always thought they were the Scottish U2 to a degree, that they kind of went, the sound changed, it became bigger, it became stadium, it became, you know, like Waterfront. And obviously, don't you forget about me, obviously, it was, it was you know, such a huge hit from the film and so on. And would that be fair? I don't know. It's not, well, I think, see, I think they were they were both moving in, in each other's directions, really, because I think U2 started as a, you know, as a rock band or a post-rock mm-hmm. band, but, but were, I guess more... A bit more kind of um, traditional, I suppose, in, in the way they use their music than, than Simple Minds. You know, YouTube have never done anything as experimental as Simple no. Minds. Um, and I think, and they, and they each looked at each other and kind of thought, I'd like a bit of that. And, and I think you hear that around the time of New Gold Dream, you can, you can I think on the Unforgettable Fire, the, the album that came after that for you two, you can hear you two, I think, trying to, to ape some of those atmospherics in that record and that kind of more textural thing. So... I also thought it was a bit unfair. I also thought Simple Minds were kind of ahead of the curve in terms yeah. of their comparison to U2, but they definitely, about 83, I think, you can hear Simple Minds, I think because they're playing bigger spaces and, and they can hear how U2 made that work. Yeah. You know, and you have to kind of simplify the music a bit and it has to calm down a little bit and you have to cut through a bit more with the rhythm section. So I think you de- they definitely learned lessons around that stage. And then, of course, they get Steve Lillywhite, the U2 producer, yeah. to Spark on the Rain. The waterfront so i think later on they, they, they were influenced but i always think the influence worked at least as much the other in the other direction yeah i think you're right i mean what do you think has contributed to their longevity i mean they're still i think in a couple of weeks time they're playing the teca in aberdeen which is a you know twelve thousand mm. kind of in the hydro in glasgow as well what, what's contributed to that is it just they're so ingrained in, in in the music history or is it well i think i mean they still put on a really good show i think they've always fundamentally been a a really strong live band and they've managed to keep that um, element, I think, alive. But also, um, I think there was a period where they could have gone down that kind of rewind 80s retro, um, yeah. you know, route. And they managed not to do that quite cleverly, that, you know, they kept making new records. I think they took a step back. That whole five by five tour, you know, when they when they went, revisited these records about 10 years ago and they played all those old songs live to the kind of hardcore audience. I think that did have an impact in terms of just kind of keeping them feeling a little bit more fresh than some of their contemporaries. Um, and they have got, you know, unlike a lot of Scottish bands, they have got, you know, 10 or 12 absolute kind of killer songs mm. in the catalogue, you know, huge oh, yeah. glo- global hits that, that people are always going to want to hear, I think. Um, yeah, there's no filler, I think, in their set that would be pretty no. strong all the way through, sort of thing. Yeah. And, so it, think, it, sorry, Graham. Sorry, yeah, and even, uh, I mean, recently the... Um, did an acoustic um, um, uh, set uh, that uh, I saw on the, on the BBC. And uh, to be honest, when I saw it coming up, I thought, oh, this is not going to be good. But uh, they were very sensitive the way that they had rearranged the, the, the songs. And, you know, they were, you know, they still had the essence um, sonically of what was going on with the, the, the full band versions. But um, they weren't adverse to uh, bringing in some assistance in the way of uh, the Anchor S 
to uh, you know pr provide a different texture for things. So they're they're not um, a band who are uh, you, you rooted in the past, really, are they? They are flexible still. Yeah, I think that's really key. They've, they've been quite savvy, I think, in how they've kind of um, managed to keep things fluid and and yeah, bringing in the anchoress and Sarah Brown. You know, those vocals now are a huge part of their their show. The acoustic thing I thought was really interesting because it's really you know, it's very counterintuitive, really, for Simple Minds, I think, to do an acoustic uh, record and show because, and actually it wasn't that acoustic, but there was a lot of instrumentation on that stage when, yeah. when you listen to it. But <laughs> but it did give them the opportunity to kind of reinvent those songs and just keep them. I think it is now about that balancing between your your legacy and also just moving the story forward, you know, making sure it's just not about nostalgia. It's about just trying to keep it fresh. And I think they've, they've become, uh, they've actually become very good at, at that getting that balance right and kind of just giving people enough of the new stuff and enough of the old stuff to keep it feeling fresh. I think it's, I think it's a good testament to them. You know, that obviously, don't you forget about me, which actually was one of the stories I loved from the book was the fact that um, they were listening to the 12-inch of Donna Summer, I Feel Love, and the bass player on that song then wrote, don't you forget about me, I got Keith Forsey, which I thought, was what a weird coincidence, but... I don't think that song has defined Simple Minds. It's not like, you know, I'm sure they still play it live. Hopefully not the last song, but maybe somewhere in the middle. That's right. They've always kind of put it in the middle of the set. And I think yeah. they've, they've always had that slight ambivalence that, you know, this is not our song. We didn't write yeah. it. And this, yeah. this is the one that everybody, you know, ultimately when Simple Minds, uh, you know, shuffle off the motor coil, that's the one they're going to play on the radio. Um, yeah. I think they've made their peace with that in a way that maybe hadn't at the time because it felt like a bit of a, kicking the teeth to have made eight records and have, you know, have already have a few hit singles in Europe, but you know, that is the song that, that everyone remembers. But if you listen to the demo of that song, it's, 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 it's a world away from what they did with it. You know, they actually, in an afternoon, they made it into what it is. It, it is a simple mind song. Um, yeah. Cause I, I watched the breakfast club at the weekend and the, the, at the start of the film, there's the demo version plays over the start, I think. And then obviously their version when John Nelson punches the air at the end, which is a yeah. very, Iconic film movements, sort of thing. I did enjoy that. Honestly. But yeah, they were very reluctant to do it, you know, and they were like, well, you know, we want to do, you know, Werner Herzog uh, soundtracks and we, we want to do European art films. And there's this big John Hughes movie that were. Why but, did they pick Simple Minds, I wonder, for that? Because they were kind of a niche band that. No, no, I guess they were pretty successful. I mean, they were. Well, he, well Keith Forsey loved, he was a huge fan of them. And also that their AM, who were the record company in America, um, were also co-producing the movie. And I think ah. they saw it, they'd kind of realized that they'd messed up a bit with Ego Dream and Spark on the Ray and they hadn't made those records as successful as they could have been in the States. So they were like, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna, we're gonna give you this song for this movie. It's gonna be huge. Um, and they were like, nah, we don't really like it. You know, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, do, we'll do our own song. And they eventually persuaded Simple Minds to record it. And, uh, and yeah, the rest is history, as you say, it worked. I bet they're glad they did, actually. So, but, yeah. I'm sure they are now, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm sure it doesn't hurt. Like, it pays the bills every Christmas, probably. They still didn't put it on their, you know, they didn't put it, they refused to put it on Once Upon a Time, the, the record that came out, you know, a few months afterwards. They were like, nah, it's not, it's not going on the album. Um, I never thought but, of that. You're right, that's not yeah. on there, is it? Uh, no, they had, they had a lot of pressure to put it on, and they were like, no, it's not our song. It's not going on the record. Um, they always had that slightly gallus, you know, very stubborn, Glasgow streak. It's always still there, and it was always there, and it didn't. It was slightly kind of productive sometimes. That's funny. We, we we talked to a guy recently. This guy Pierce Turner, who's a based, he's an Irish guy, but he's based in New York. We talk about New York music. You know, bands like Talking Heads and Television, 
And, you know, for me, Glasgow had a, had a very similar vibe to the New York kind of tough, tough music in the tough streets of Glasgow. I mean, now Glasgow's got a very bad reputation, which is not fair at all, but that, that music comes from that kind of place, you know, sort of thing. So. I think there's a bit of that, but also there's a that kind of imagining something else as well, isn't there? Mm, it's kind of yeah. turning your circumstances into something more sort of, uh, yeah, imaginistic and idealistic, and, and they were very good at that. Okay. Um, obviously, one, one of my re- our listeners actually said to me the other day, thought this was one of your most personal works to date. So that was good. That was very, you obviously were a fan of, of the band and it came across very well in the book. So, um, But you obviously have written other books as well. I mean, how did the mm. Dublin at one come about? Yeah. Well, first of all, that's really nice to hear. Is Because it, people, I think, often think if it's kind of non-fiction and you're writing about other things that it's it's not personal and you're kind of removed yeah. from it. But, it, but it, it really is personal and you do write it. As I said, there's many different ways you can write these books, and I, and I try and kind of put myself into them. Phil Linnett, um, you know, would be an example of some. You know, Thin Lizzy weren't probably as established in my recollection as someone like, you know, Simple Minds were, for example. You know, um, I always liked Thin Lizzy, and I always thought he was in a really interesting and an amazing singer. I just lo- always loved his voice. Um, but I suppose that would be a book that came about because of uh, I was just fascinated by his story as much as anything. Um, and I felt, again, I felt that there probably wasn't a book that had really dug into the, the real detail of, of his life. Um, and I wrote, I actually wrote a letter, an old fashioned letter to his, his wife or his former wife, Caroline, who, um, who was still married to Phil when he died. And I and kind of just kind of laid out my reasoning for trying to do something and hope, hoping to get her on board. And, and she phoned me up and we kind of took it from there. Okay. Yeah, have you seen have you seen the film they made about Phil Songs from Away? Have you watched mm-hmm. that? Yeah, I have yeah. What what do you think of that though? Um I thought it was a good job. I mean there's bits in there that that or bits that aren't in there that maybe should be in there. Um it's difficult. I mean, uh, you know, I think um but I thought it was you know, I, yeah, I thought it was a, it was a good yeah. good job. Yeah. yeah. I thought I just I thought it was strange that there was obviously no contributions from some of the like Brian Robertson or uh, Downey in there as well, sort of thing. But I thought that yeah, it was a decent enough sort of thing. Yeah. It is quite. It's quite. It's quite. Still now, even though his his mother is no longer with us, it's quite a tangled sort of dynamic. Um, the line yeah. estate. There's a lot of people involved, and um, there are sometimes kind of conflicting interests and stuff. In, yeah, in telling that story. And, and you do, I mean, things are still playing. I mean, it's basically a tribute band now. They mm. one one member sort of thing going on. But anyway, there we go. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, just growing out of interest, uh, do you mm. think that uh, um, people like contributing to that that movie that they might have had a different re- um, reaction to being filmed and telling their story, you know, on, on film uh, or their 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 recollections of of on film? Rather than confiding them to uh, a writer, do you, do you, you know, I, I, I was looking at some people on that who would have known a lot more about um, where he was in terms of his life and his addictions uh, that, you know, simply appeared to be in, in, in some kind of uh, uh, reluctance to um, say more, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. And also, we, I suppose we don't know what they recorded and what wasn't used or, or you know what ultimately it's down I guess to the edit and the director and I'm, I'm a great admirer of Ema Reynolds I think she's a fantastic uh, filmmaker and, and she's a, a very nice person um, so I don't know if there was a particular and there's, there's time limitations that you don't have in a book you know obviously a book 
you do have the space to kind of go into much more detail. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, as I say, I think they wanted to probably focus more on the music ultimately and, and the positive aspects of his story, which, which are enormous, actually. You know, there is a huge amount of, of positivity in, in the way and what he achieves in his life, I think, regardless yeah. of the way it ended. So I, mean, I think maybe quite rightly they wanted to, to emphasize that. And, but to me, there were a couple of kind of, uh, yeah, I think the balance maybe wasn't quite right. There was a few yeah. couple of glaring omissions there that I felt Do, just skewed out. Do you think there's a film to be made of Simple Minds then? Could be? Um, I'm sure there is. Yeah, I'm sure there is. Uh, you mean a documentary or? or, mm, a, well, or a yeah, yeah, probably. I think so. Yeah, I, I, I would imagine there's, there's probably stuff ongoing about that because um, I think they've now kind of, they're now very much aware that there is a, a market and there is a kind of interest. And everyone's doing that now, aren't they? Everyone's doing <laughs> podcasts and films and, uh, you know, it, it's a big part of what keeps a band, I think, fresh and relevant. And we're talking about that, you know, it's another way of, of just keeping the story moving. So I'd imagine there will be things happening in that regard. Yeah. yeah. It'd be quite interesting, yeah. I think. It'd be great. Yeah. 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 Uh, Graham, I mean, a couple of other people you've written about uh, either, you know, in um, uh, biographies or um, uh, mm. in journalism, um, Kate Bush and Mark Hollison and probably John Martin. Um, th th these are very British characters in a way, aren't they? They're, they kind of plow their own furrow. Um, they, um, you know, they were all touched in one way or another with uh, with genius, and um, they they're kind of compelling uh, type of artists, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's funny. I was thinking about this recently, in a way, thinking about how different the Simple Minds book is from other books I've written because they have tended to be about the kind of maverick, visionary, you know. Um, eccentric genius artists who, who it all comes out of their own head and it's one person really who just who just uh, has that incredible um creativity I, I, of course it isn't that, it isn't that simple actually there's lots of people who contribute to to that music but um yeah i didn't think about the british thing i was i mean there's a celtic kind of thing certainly with kate bush and john martin and mark hollis as well i, I think connects to a kind of ancient idea of britain or or England or, you know, like Celtic Britain, that I think um, certainly I get something from that, from his music. Um, but it's, it's, it's very different. It, it's very different writing about a single person than it is to write about um, yeah. a band. And I, I liked, I actually liked this idea of, in this book, Themes for Great Cities, right? Exploring that idea of a, a really creative democracy in a way and people all kind of um, inputting into the music. Yeah, and it must be a very different thing to, um, you know, write about somebody like Kate Bush, where you have a very different path uh, of access to people than you would do uh, with, with, you know, very open contributors like, like uh, the members of Simple Minds were. So each each subject has its own challenges, doesn't it? Completely, yeah. I mean, Kate Bush is probably the, the epitome of that, of... Um... I mean, it's almost she's almost like a fictional character in a way. You know, she's almost like a, mytholo a mythological character, and you, <laughs> you know, you're reliant or a, a historical character, and you're kind of reliant on you're, you're very reliant in that case on people around her who know her and who, um, you know, there's a lot of interviews in that book because it, it's people telling you how she works and the dynamic of that, and and then you have to kind of, in a sense, take a punt really and hope that you get it near enough right that your sense of 
who she is and how she works is is kind of right because you don't as you say you don't have the immediate access um it's, a, it's an interesting process and um i was amazed with that book actually how many people did you know i i was there was a few publishers who were just like we're not going near this we, you won't get anyone to talk to you um she's very protective um but actually it, it was better than i had imagined um when we when i did get into it there were quite a lot of people um were willing to talk and because now she works in a very close circle of people there were people who hadn't worked with her for maybe 20 30 years who were very, very perfectly willing to in fact very keen to kind of just extol her virtues and, and to say how amazing it was to work with her and to explain that process so um i think yeah with time those kind of avenues open up a little bit more yeah she's got a very different attitude to some of her past work hasn't she i mean uh uh, it, it's unlikely that we're ever going to see any major revisitation uh, in, in the way of compilations or things like that. I mean, I think the whole story was the last one and she reworked a few bits with the director's cut. But, it, you know, th those, she, do you think she regards those early albums being a bit juvenile? Because, I mean, she did write a lot of stuff when she was in her early teens that appeared on the, the, the first couple of albums. It appears, it appears that's the case, yeah. I think, and, and, Perhaps the way she used her voice as well then, I think, is something she moved away from. Um, and you're right, I can't think, I really can't think of another artist who has, who has done less to kind of revise their catalogue or their work. <laughs> you know, we were talking about uh, Talk Talk, but there, are, there is no outtakes. There is, there is no kind of peeking under the, the bonnet into the engine of how Kate Bush makes those records. It, it kind of just appears as a fully formed um, entity and I think that's the way she likes it she doesn't really want people to see um the hard work that goes on underneath it so um yeah and I was struck I mean I was very lucky to go and see the the before the dawn uh shows a few god well quite a few years ago now that she played and um there was nothing from before 1985 you know Hounds of Love was was the starting point as far as I could tell of what she regarded with her career and um that's a lot of records, you know, The Dreaming and, and uh, Never Forever, I think, are two really great records with great songs, but I doubt we'll ever get to hear any of those uh, songs played live now. Um, it was Does interesting. He, it's, yeah. Does he still sell records, Michael? I mean, obviously you work in a record shop, but does he still sell Cape Bush? Oh, records? sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, um, uh, they're... She's been, you know, discovered by uh, new audiences uh, fairly regularly, I would say, over the years, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, various of her songs uh, were sampled by the likes of uh, Future Heads and uh, was it 808 State, I think, did one as well, or Utah Saints, sorry. Um, so, yes, I mean, there's still an interest there. Actually, that's a curious thing, Graeme, uh, the, the first five or six um uh, Simple Minds albums are unavailable on vinyl at the moment. So, you know, maybe this new uh, coolness that you're bringing to their back catalogue is going to start seeing some of these reissued, which would be more than welcome. You're saying I should be getting a consultancy fee or some kind sure. of cut? Of, of, yeah. <laughs> Why not? Well, I can't disagree with that, Michael. Um, yeah, no, I, I think, yeah, there are these bands where, where there clearly are kind of gaps on, on um, certainly vinyl and some even on streaming, although I think Simple Minds are all there. Um, I hope so. I mean, it, it was one of the, you know, it's not an evangelical thing, but it was one of the kind of purposes of the book in some ways was just to kind of shine a light on this record, yeah. on this music and uh, and hope that more people listen to it. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned the 5x5 tour, because I think, Michael, that is one of the releases on the record store day. 
It is. Yeah, it's the valve. That looks lovely, actually. It looks really nice for a company. Yeah. That's a great idea. Yeah, it's a triple album, I think. Yeah. <laughs> triple yeah. vinyl album of, of that, those shows, which I thought worked really well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Kate Bush, I mean, she still she still sells books as well. I mean, I have to say, thank God, she, that book still sells because people are continually interested in in her and, and as, as, as you were saying, continually discovering yeah. her work. And because she doesn't do very much, you don't have to keep updating the story. It's kind of all there <laughs> and you, you can just dive in at any time and it feels like it's it's still kind of relevant. You, know, you don't yeah. catch up too much. Yeah, and you got that with uh, Talk Talk as well, don't you? I mean, even mm-hmm. if you listen to... Uh, the early studio albums, you can definitely tell there was something, you know, just a bit different about the way that the songs were were, were constructed. I mean, I uh, I liked them from from day one, and they really took uh, fans on uh, the most amazing musical journey, didn't they? I mean, it really, uh, I can remember buying the uh, Spirit of Eden when I was in London the week that it came out, and just been absolutely gobsmacked at at, at where it was going and. Uh, it, it, it there was this interesting trajectory with Mark Hollis's music, wasn't there? It got quieter, more filled with silence, you know, basically, you know, until it was silence. Yeah. And that he decided that's enough. He, he just put the lid down on the piano and that was it. I know. It's, it's a fascinating story that in, a, in a, you know, 10 years or so, that, that what that band, the journey that they went on is, is extraordinary. And, and, but I agree, you can hear him trying to do it on kind of limited uh, instrumentation. And, and, you know, you can hear the frustration, I think, in those first two records that it doesn't quite sound the way he wants it to sound. And then Color of Spring, I think you can start to hear it really taking shape, that vision. Um, and then those last two records, I remember getting Laughing Stock. I was in Freshers Week in Glasgow. I'd just gone to university and bang Laughing Stock. And also just the lyrics, you know, looking at the lyrics and they become... You know, they move away from meaning completely until they're just these little fragments of, of phrases and lines that don't quite add up to anything that makes literal sense anyway. Um, um, yeah, fa- a fascinating story. So what, what are you up to next, Graham? What's your next project? I mean, you can't say, but I mean... No, well, I am gonna, I'm going to write a book about, uh, about Talk Talk, about those um, really focused on the last three Talk Talk records and the Mark Hollis solo record. And it's not... It's not going to be a biography as such. I think there is a biography of Mark Hollis coming out. There is, yeah. Soon. Yeah. Um, which I take my hat off to. I think that's a, that's a really daunting and, and uh, admirable task. But I, I would like to kind of dive, a bit like Simple Minds, but perhaps even more so, kind of dive right into the music of those okay. four records. And, and again, put quite a lot of myself into that as well. So that's the next plan. Yeah. And one, also, we're coming out of, well, it feels like today we're kind of out of COVID now. It's gone, it's gone from the news completely now. I know. I mean, a, a writer is probably something that was, you know, didn't really affect your work as such in COVID, but maybe affected how you sold it or, or I mean, the book events and stuff. But I guess that's coming back to normal now for you as well, is it? Or Yeah, I mean, the John, the John Martin book came out, you know, right in the middle of COVID. So we had to be quite, um, a bit more inventive in terms of just launching that. And actually, we, we, we commissioned five, it was brilliant, five videos of different songwriters covering his songs, and we put them online. And um, it worked actually really well. And it was just coming into the summer of 2020, so things were beginning to open up a bit. Yeah. Didn't, but, but it didn't really affect my day-to-day. There was no gigs. You know, I, I do gig yeah. reviews occasionally, so that they all stopped, obviously. But... Um, it was, it's been a very quite a productive time for me, actually. The last couple of years, I've been able just to get on with stuff. And the Simple Minds book, 
we had to be, you know, as I say, the main interviews with Jim and Charlie were done just literally kind of two weeks before um, everything started to fall apart. Um, I got to see Mick McNeil in the middle of that summer when we were allowed to meet up for a bit. A couple of other things were on the phone. It, just, it, it kind of disrupted that slightly, but yeah. It's, it's mad, by the way, that's almost two years for COVID. And I was looking through my concert tickets this morning, physical ones, and I got a ticket for Michael Kiwanuka on the 14th of March, 2020. And it's not even happened yet. I think it's in May this year, finally. And it's moved venue from the Barlands to the O2 in Glasgow, which is... That's a shame. Yeah, shame. that's a shame. But I'm like, surely this is the final the final unwinding of these delayed gigs, so... Well, well, I mean, actually, Simple Minds are a great barometer because that that they were just going off on tour in March. I think they played a few shows in Den- in Norway or something, and they're just starting that tour at yeah. the end of this month. Two yeah. years later, they're now playing that. It was the forty years of hit tour, the forty years of hits, but it's now I think it's now forty two years of hits. <laughs> <laughs> Time has defeated them. So, yeah, it's weird. Everything's everything's. Well, I, was, I was impressed. I haven't lost my tickets because I found tickets for that, and I found tickets for the Twilight Sad, which is at Barlands. Which is again two years later, sort of thing. But I hadn't lost the tickets, thank goodness, that was fine. But um, so it's a shame. And a lot of these bands who'll be chomping at the bit to do new things, but they've kind of had to fulfill these obligations. And yeah, you know, it, the rhythm of, of releases and albums and tours is, is quite a complicated thing. So the it, it's been very frustrating, I think, for a lot, well, all of us, I suppose. But I guess for artists who want to get new stuff out, it's been it's been tough. You got any gigs coming up, uh, Graham? I was at Ron Sexsmith uh, last night, which was oh. uh, at Cotier's in Glasgow. Um, I'm going to see the Weather Station, um, who I really like, who are playing uh, mono. Um, and I'm going to see Simple Minds, uh, April the 6th at the Hydro. Um, did, did you get a free ticket? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like two, to think so. I get two free, two free tickets, yeah. Ah, that, I mean, yeah of course. Yeah. There's, nothing, there's nothing Terry likes more than a bit of freeloading, Graham. I'm, I'm right there with him, I have to say, yeah. Oh, Parts of the job. I was thinking that'd be surprised. I was, still, I was going to ask that, I thought, well, maybe we didn't get one, that would be a bit of a slight. Uh, but um, no, that's good. That'll be good. Well, I, I'm going to buy a ticket to see them in Aberdeen, I think. So, uh, yeah, it'll be good. I'm looking forward to that. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm down in London. We're doing an event uh, down in London on Thursday for the book with um, with Pat Nevin, who's also got a book out. So we're doing a kind of joint thing um, and Shan Patton's hosting that. So that should be fun. Because Pat Nevin, he's a bit of a DJ as well, isn't he? He's done a lot of stuff, yeah. Yeah, and he had, he had very, he was a huge early Simple Minds fan. He's, he actually mentions it in his, I think the only footballer's book who mentions uh, songs from Empires and Dance is <laughs> one of his favourite songs. Um, so we felt there was some kind of cross-cultural musical connections there that we, we could oh, sort of talk about. So that that'll good. be fun. Yeah. Oh, excellent. All right, good. Well, I'm sure you'll have fun with that, uh, Graham. Uh, Graham, we've had enormous uh, fun talking to you this morning. Uh, Themes for Great Cities uh, is out in all good bookshops at the moment and is a fantastic read. So best of well, continuing success with that. And uh, personally, can't wait to see your Talk Talk Mark Hollis book when it eventually comes. Brilliant. Thank you very much, guys. Yeah. It's been a real treat. Chat. Thank you, time, Graham. Thank you. Thanks, Graham. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Bye-bye. Right, Terry, that was um, uh, fantastic stuff from Graham and uh, the book's been a, a, a great success. And uh, can't wait for his talk, talk, Mark Hollis opus when it comes. Yeah, well, I, I, I really enjoyed the book. I mean, so my sort of history of Simple Minds, listening to them was probably, I didn't get into them until probably fifth or sixth album. Sparkle in the Rain probably was when I got into it first. Maybe Don't You Forget About Me from the film and stuff. And 
Um, but certainly the period he covers, he's obviously a fan. He's a fan. It's a very interesting period of of um, them starting off in Glasgow and kind of getting through the clubs and bars and so on and becoming obviously they had, had bigger ideas for for you know themes for a great city sort of idea early on and uh, I thought it was thirty fascinating and actually as I can be said to Graham I think for me a story of Glasgow music would be a fantastic story for a book you know because it's a very you know, look at all the bands have have come out of there over the years and I certainly don't really know the history of there compared to maybe Dublin or Belfast sort of thing so. Yeah, uh, and uh, it's kind of interesting that uh, uh, throughout the interview about, you know, uh, changes in personnel making a big difference to their sound. I mean, at the, the, the one and only time that I actually saw them live was on the Once Upon a Time tour, and I couldn't get over how loud Mel Gaynor's drumming was. And, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Okay, for filling out a big arena like that, that's certainly one way of doing it. But to me, there was a lot of kind of subtlety and nuance of the earlier stuff that was kind of really kind of obliterated by by having a you know like a really rock drumming uh, kind of performance uh, backing it up. Yeah, it was funny because my my younger son is is not a Simple Minds fan by any stretch of the means, but he he would know some of the songs certainly. Don't you forget about me? Obviously through the film and so on, and I had a, a shuffled playlist on the car the other day, um, and it was playing one of the early songs. I can't remember what it was. And then went on to Waterfront. And Stuart was actually just, he was just taken aback by the, the difference in the sound. And it was the, the drums and the noise. And he was like, and I had to kind of quite loud. And he, went, he kind of went, bloody hell, that's a bit of a shift, isn't it? And I said, so we talked about the drummer. And I said, that's, that's what it was. And he went, it's massively different. And obviously, you know, it, it does sound a bit more, it's not American as such, but it's for that American market sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, they, they really did uh, step up to be uh, like a stadium band from around about that time, you know, yeah. and uh, uh, I, I I can see the logic of it in terms of you've got to fill out that big space and project mm. a bit more. And, you know, this is in the day uh, before uh, video screens and stuff like that um, for, for, for big gigs, you know, so yeah. you, you had to find some way to... Um, uh, break the barrier with the audience, and uh, um, evidently was affected uh, uh, affected because they were, you know, increasingly popular. But uh, I, I think they lost something along the way as well, a wee bit. Okay, they are um, for those are are playing in Aberdeen in a couple of weeks' time at the Teca. So I was looking to go to a gig, and I thought, having not seen them for a long time, I would I would probably go and see them again. And I had a quick look at their set list the other day, which is quite a nice. Greatest hit selection and stuff. So I think I'm quite, I'm quite looking forward to see that. Actually. So, yeah. yeah. And uh, the uh, 5x5 um, live set is out for Record Store Day on April 23rd, I think, as well. And uh, that'd be an interesting thing to listen to, just uh, you know, because that does cover the, the, the first albums. One thing about bands in America, I was watching, again, we're off topic a little bit, but I think recently a little clip of Tommy Tiernan, and he was talking about Irish music, and he ended up talking about Big Tom and the Mainliners, was his story. But he was talking about American bands, American music. He said, oh, America's given us some great music over the years. You know, it's given us, you know, this is not from different people in, in the middle of it slipped in, you too. And I thought, well, that is very true. <laughs> and and then, then he goes on to, um, uh, I don't want to go back to rugby, but that song, Ireland's Call, that they do. And he said, they basically fucking made that song so the numpties from the north could sing with the numpties from the south. At the weekend, I made a point of watching it and they don't always sing it anyway so but it's a terrible song actually uh yeah it's it's a bit of cheese but um uh, i kind of admire the um 
uh, the sentiment behind it in yeah, terms yeah. of, of um, you, you know, the, like for somebody from from Northern Ireland, um, uh, you, you know, um, the Irish national anthem is uh, a bit on the Republican side um, in terms of its lyric. Uh, it's about fighting and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we've had enough fighting in our wee country, haven't we, Terry, on either I'm side of the so? Well, funny, I was playing the, just to wind somebody up this morning, the fields of Athen Rye this morning in work. And um, the guy that wrote that died recently. I don't know who it was, but he apparently died recently. So, um, and the Tommy Riley. Yes. Or Paddy Riley. Sorry, it's Paddy, Paddy Riley. So, but uh, I hadn't really had written sort of thing, but I was just playing it to wind up a couple of Rangers fans this morning. So. <laughs> and uh, speaking of fighting, Terry, uh, was there much fighting at the uh, Comic Con in uh, Tekka that you? went to at the weekend well um yeah if you include the jedi school which i i didn't go to actually so uh that was you know people make a lot of fun of kind of comic book you know the comic-con type scenario these events and so on but they're fantastically well attended and i have to say i'd never been to one before believe it or not but i <laughs> quite enjoyed my morning there um i wasn't quite sure the format how it worked because obviously they have you know panel sessions they have a massive sort of retail section where you can buy overpriced autographs and lightsabers and Harry Potter potions and you, know, you name it. And then they have, the bit that I thought was interesting was all these little kind of autograph booths, if you like. They weren't really booths, but they were like each celebrity had a, a pull-up stand and, you know, you could basically buy a signed photograph or get a, get a photograph signed or get a selfie. And each one had a price list at the front, which... which <laughs> Which, so you could go around and see, you know, obviously the most expensive person, you know, was obviously the, probably the bigger celebrities and then they kind of went down the way sort of thing. So um, so here's a little quiz for you. I'm going to name three people. Who I won't know. Oh, you will. No, you will. You know these people. You tell me who was the most expensive. Okay. Jet from Gladiator. Uh, John Reese davis who was Gimli in uh, Lord of the Rings. Or Bobby from uh, Still Game. Uh, local interest. I'm going for Bobby. Nope, it was uh, Mr. Reese Davis. He was forty quid for a selfie. Oh, jeepers! Oh, also forty quid was uh, Peter Weller. He was Robocop. Oh right, I, I nearly would have paid forty quid for that. Yeah, even bad, except he wore a little French berry, which was a bit odd. Strange <laughs> <laughs> looking. Um, they had a whole suite of the gladiators there, which you know, if you, people remember the show, they don't really look like them anymore, but they were all very friendly and. They were walking about the place. Although one of the stall holders, early doors, gave me a tip. He said, don't pay for the selfie. He said, just wait till they've kind of taken a break. And they generally wander about the show floor and just grab a photograph for free. So and did you? I did. <laughs> <laughs> Cheapskate. <laughs> I spoke to a guy called Clive Russell, who you'd recognise. He's a Scottish actor, super tall. He was in a few, he's been in loads of shows. He's been in like Silent Witness and different things over the years. He's been in Game of Thrones for several episodes, which is where I knew him from. So I waited until he just left the stall and asked him for a photograph. And he was super happy. He didn't even complain about it. So, But yeah. it, he was only a tenor anyway. So, It was a good, I mean, it was a good event, I think. You know, good for Aberdeen, I think. So, yeah. yeah. Out of curiosity, was it well attended? It seemed pretty busy. I mean... Although someone told me today there's quite a few COVID cases coming from it, so there we go, but with no masks on. But I, I was, it was, we went on a Sunday morning about 11 o'clock, and the hall was probably 
not quite full, but not far from it. And I saw pictures from Saturday, which looked looked pretty busy. Um, and I think a lot of the tickets for the Saturday were almost sold out. And they're already selling for next year, which goes to show the kind of excitement. But the one there was one Uber celebrity who didn't turn up, which is a bit sad, which was Warwick Davis. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he didn't turn up, which is a bit of a shame, because he would have been quite, a, you know, Star Wars and all these sort of things. Yeah. But, but my problem is some of the people who were there didn't really play themselves. They played like characters with masks on, like some of the Star Wars ones. And so you wouldn't really know who they were. Yeah. Again, could, do you think the whole thing was a bit untenable without Warwick Davis being there? No, I think people probably didn't even know he was there. I only spotted it because they had a poster for him and it was wedged into the corner, obviously, like, because he's not turning up, we'll put it out of the way. So, and um, I guess he, he, did, he did present tenable, didn't he? Yeah, yeah that's true. So, but he, he was, but no, I think it was, I mean, the panel sessions, I watched one of them, and I mean, it's, it's not quite like San Diego where they've got the, the cast of the new Marvel film all talking about it and stuff. But it's, but it's Aberdeen, and, you know, speaking to the stall holders, the guy was telling me he's doing a show every weekend until September. Wow. Somewhere, Nottingham, Manchester, Birmingham, Glasgow, Aberdeen, you name it. He's doing a weekend thing every weekend until September. And then he stops for the, for the winter almost. So. Yeah. Oh, nice little sinecure for them, I must say. Um, somebody else who, who's uh, maybe doing a bit of sinecure work is Alex Lifeson, a great guitarist from uh, uh, the sadly um, uh, no longer Rush, uh, Rush the band. Uh, Alex is putting up a big load of his guitars for sale uh, oh. at, at auction with Julian's Auctions. Terry, I've sent you a link for it, I including his that. beloved White Gibson 335, which I think is probably going to go for half a million or so. <laughs> so good luck to Alex with that, whatever he decides to do with it. Uh, and he's got a new band on the go, Envy of None, uh, who sounded a bit interesting. One of the tracks I heard was guitar-based, which is kind of what you'd expect. But there was definitely a slightly more ethereal, non-guitar quality to the second one that they've just well, released. Well, the one I heard was more, yeah, it was. It was very much non-guitar, not which I guess is what he wants. He doesn't want to basically do a Rush Mark II, does he, sort of thing. So mm-hmm. it's, like, it's like quite soon, I think, as well, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I think next month, next month. A uh, couple of things which are out um, the last week or two are a couple of uh, kind of uh, either end of the spectrum pop albums. Um, Rex Orange County is a new one. Who cares? Uh, Nilifer Yanya has uh, her second album, Painless, out as well. These are two very different albums, Terry. Um, Rex Orange County is kind of like, I, I don't know, I'm trying to think of ways to describe it. It sounds like um, it might appeal to People have never heard of Stevie Wonder. So it's oh. got that uh, super kind of uh, melodic uh, sounding vocal to it. And, uh, you know, quite soulful in a modern way with some um, naughty kind of arrangements to it. The poor guy's got an absolute pasting in some of the reviews for playing it completely safe. But I thought by modern standards, it was okay as uh, pop albums go. It'll, um, it'll, probably, it'll probably sound quite good if you listen to it in a desert, like Coachella or something, maybe. I can play yeah, it. yeah, indeed. Um, Nilifer Yanya is from London, and um, she's a very different kettle of fish. Uh, the um, uh, second album, Painless, is just out, and uh, it's a very good listen. A couple of tracks, rhythmically, sounded a wee bit like um, something you might have found on uh, uh, Radiohead's In Rainbows, 
So with weird fishes, that kind of thing, in terms of the, the very persistent kind of beat uh, to it. Uh, she's a good guitarist, a good lyricist, and um, uh, quite quite cotton in some of the, the lyrics. So um, uh, I would certainly recommend us, uh, that as something to have a listen to, and probably before Rex Orange County, really. Okay. Speaking of Radiohead, I don't know if you've... <clears throat> your man Johnny Greenwood was on the BAFTAs at the weekend. Um, he was picking up the award for soundtrack for that part of the dog. He's an odd fish. <laughs> I mean, he came up, he didn't really want to pick up the award, I think was the one thing, but he was, no, he was picking it up on behalf of somebody else. That's what he was doing, actually. Yeah, he was picking it up on behalf of somebody else. But yeah, it looks a lot of strange guy, but I mean, it's a fantastic soundtrack. And you kind of forget that these people are doing these other things, you know, so. Yeah, he's got quite a lot of other things because uh, mm. he's got another band, The Smile, on the go. Yeah. And uh, obviously Radiohead, and he has done kind of uh, orchestral Kind of collaborations as well over recent years so um yeah he, he, he i think probably the reason he didn't want to say anything is uh, uh he, he's got too much to talk about rather than too little well maybe someone he doesn't have a lot to talk about was batman <laughs> yeah tell me about this i haven't seen a batman movie since i think 1989 <laughs> okay well i can recommend this one that's terrible <laughs> so I went, I went to see the batman it's impossible for to get the in first so it's got old Robert Pattinson in there as Batman. Uh, I don't know how many, I don't know if he's caught, it's not, it's not really a sequel to anything because it's a, an original sort of story. Um, but it's, uh, I was a bit apprehensive because it's almost three hours long. Uh, it's very dark. It's almost all set at night apart from the end part. I won't give too much away. But uh, I actually didn't think it dragged at all. Very enjoyable. Uh, a very good almost detective story as opposed to like a superhero film. Um, really good cast with it as well. You've got Colin Farrell plays the Penguin. Um, Paul Danu plays the Riddler. You recognise him from a few, he's been in a few sort of, uh, he's in War and Peace in the BBC and so on. But um, no, Pattinson does a very good emo Batman. Um, you know, it doesn't say an awful lot. Andy Circus is his faithful Albert sort of uh, helper sort of thing. And uh, no, very enjoyable film. Um, also, it's interesting to see the locations all the way through it as well. Obviously, some of it's in London, a lot of it's in Liverpool. So you recognize some of the buildings in Liverpool. In fact, he jumps off the library building at one point, and then it's about the end, which is set in um, the Acropolis in Glasgow. Clearly, it's Glasgow, you can see that, which is fantastic. So, um, but I would recommend it actually. As I would go and see it again if, it was, if I could see it tomorrow at home, I would watch it again, I think, for sure. Yeah, but one thing about Batman, I just saw this yesterday, was that the Glasgow shop owners were complaining. So they're filming um, Batgirl at the minute in Glasgow. And I saw somebody recently, in fact, my daughter was in town and she took, sent me a picture from George Square. It looked like the Christmas lights were still up, but they're filming in George Square and it's set at Christmas time. And they were complaining that because the roads have been shut, they're not, they're losing trade. You know, people aren't coming past. And um, But my thought was they're going to get trade once they're finished because people are going to want to come to see the locations and so on. And, I thought it was a bit short-sighted, maybe. But yeah, well, look, Glaswegians um, always like a good moan, don't they, Terry? Let's be honest. Well, it said Warner Brothers give them thirty quid a day, or thirty quid a, for the for the for the roads being shut. They got feet. So Glasgow Council got a lot more, but obviously the shops only get so much paid by Warner Brothers or the, whoever the the TV the company was. But I would say you know because Glasgow basically is is Gotham City now. And yeah. I'm going to go back and film again. That people will come and see. Look at Game of Thrones in Northern Ireland. I mean, the people are touring all the time. So, so, but, uh, but no, I recommend the Batman. Great soundtrack again. Um, Parkinson's good. 
Colin Farrell is unrecognizable. I mean, doesn't sound like him, doesn't look like him. Um, so I'll, I won't say what it looks like till you go and see it yourself if you see it. But don't tell me he looks like Bono. <laughs> well, <laughs> go back to the start. When did, when did you two turn up on St Patrick's Day? They haven't turned up yet, like so. Yeah, yeah. Although I see that photograph of. Uh, uh, Tony Blair and Bob Geldof and Bono and Putin uh, turned up again this week, just to remind us. Uh, well, you kind of knew that was going to happen, didn't you, at some point, sort of thing. But uh, I imagine there'll be a U2 float on the in, in Dublin, or maybe they'll be in New York. That's what it'll be. They'll be in New York, probably, so to, to launch their <laughs> new album or something, I imagine, this week. So. Indeed. Uh, and uh, who's your picks for uh, this weekend in the rugby? Um, um, it's, it's hard to see there being much... Um, Possibility of anything other than a, a France Grand Slam, the way the Lakers played it. No, I don't see any different. I think uh, I can, England have no incentive to win now. They'll they'll give it a good game against France. I'm sure Eddie Jones will have them revved up, but I can't see France not losing that one. I can see hopefully Ireland should beat Scotland. We've dropped Ben Russell, by the way. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. so that was interesting because they, they got Blair King home instead. So. Finn Russell, I didn't think he played very well at all at the weekend. Um, in fact, he, he looked. In fact, he looked almost as interested as Marcus Rashford does. <laughs> he just, he just, he was, he just looked bored. Because like, maybe he was. I mean, it was a dull game for him. But uh, so yeah, I can't see any of France winning. But you never know. Strange things do happen. You never I, know. Right. I, I couldn't see Italy beating Wales, by the way. <laughs> Fingers crossed. That, that would be great. <laughs> but I don't, I don't, I don't think so. But, uh, so. No, but we, we, we can live in hope. Um, that's all for this week, Terry. Uh, we'll be back again before too long. God knows yep. what with, because we haven't recorded it yet. No. <laughs> oh, yeah, we are. Like most things. Right. We'll see you soon. Until the next time. Yeah.